Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be at church with you. Now, a couple of things. First of all, it, today is Na- Nancy's, uh, Joyce's 16th birthday. Is that right? No, 97th, 97th birthday, which is quite an achievement. Uh, oh, yes. Bravo. I do want it on the record. If your birthday is next week, you probably will not get a shout-out unless you're in your 90s. Well done, it's a great effort. Um, also, uh, next week is our Mission Gift Day. It's actually a great Sunday next week. It's Mission Gift Day, and it's also Celebration Sunday. It's a really great... Every Sunday is a great day to be at church. Next Sunday is a great day to be at church. Um, for two reasons. Mission Gift Day, just if you're newer, um, you may not understand the concept... Uh, every year in the past, we've had a day set aside where people bring a particular special gift to give to our link missionaries. Uh, these are seven people. If you don't know who they are, have a look in the in the chapel hall atrium when you go in there for morning tea. There's uh, there's there's uh, pictures of all of them there and uh, details of the different ministries that they're involved in. Um, but. Uh, Next week, we have a set week. Uh, in the past, people would have brought the money in. Nowadays, most people do give electronically, so what we're encouraging our members to do is to give a one-off gift to support those linked missionaries. That 
is together with our regular giving that comes out of our budget sent off to them. Last year we raised about $20,000. That's our goal again for this year. And I hope and pray that we'll exceed that as a real act of generosity. Maybe you've been thinking about generosity. We've talked a lot about it the last few weeks. And I really want to encourage you to... Um, you've been thinking about doing something about it and you haven't done anything. This is a great opportunity to do it. Just take this as your first step down that, that pathway, if that's the case. Uh, you can do it by just visiting our website. The Give page has um, a link, uh, has all the details for how to do that, to transfer it. And, you, and inside the booklet today, you'll see the details too. We just want you to put a reference in their Mission 23. That way, the people who run the accounts know to set that aside for our Link missionaries as part of that, that uh, Mission Gift Day. Um, no, it's fine, Sue. I'll just use this today. Um, so I do encourage you for that. Also, next week is Celebration Sunday, so we'll have brunch together after church as a way of just rejoicing in the great joy of being able to meet together as God's people. Um, so it'll be an extra special um, post-church time, so make sure you come. And look, if you bring a, um, a visitor or a guest, that's great. They get a feed on us too, so do it. Uh, it'll be worth it. Well, this week we continue our series uh, which we've been, we've been looking at through this month called A Life Together. And this has been our opportunity to reflect on our fourth mission priority of celebrating together for the glory of Christ. We said we want to be this church that's beautiful, diverse and large by the gracious work of Christ. And actually one of the things that that means is we, one of the things we need to keep repeating in the life of our church is um, this characteristic of celebrating together for the glory of Christ. It's a, it's a way of saying we want a compelling experience of Christian community. But what does that mean? It's not just something we create. And so we've spent this month thinking through different images of the church in the New Testament to help put um, flesh on the bones of this idea. We talked about being a family which nurtures each other and cares for each other. In fact, we have our care committee meeting this morning, this afternoon at 12.30 in the chapel hall if you want to be part of, further part of that conversation. Then we, have, um, we talked about being a field and how actually compelling community is a place just characterised by generosity for one another. Uh, and we talked about a temple, that our life together is this place where we get to, to worship together, which is a great, uh, great joy. And this week we're going to move on to our third, our fourth uh, image of the Bible, but of the church. But before we get there, as we start, Paul uses this phrase in verse 1. It's chapter 4 of Ephesians. He's just spent the first three chapters talking about what the, what the heart of the Christian message is. And then he turns to the Ephesians. He says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In light of the gospel, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. I think this is a very interesting and helpful verse for us and section of Ephesians because it's asking us to live as God's people, but individually and collectively, a life that is worthy of the gospel, of the calling that God has given us. Uh, the previous three chapters, that calling is expressed in a number of ways, being brought from death to life, from, light to, from darkness to light, uh, being made alive when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, this great story of rescue and resurrection that Jesus brings about by offering himself on the cross has implications, and the implications of a life worthy of the calling. In uh, the um, late 90s, early 2000 film Saving Private Ryan, there's this, the end scene, I'm going to wreck it for you, but that's okay, it's so old. 
um, where Tom Hanks' character has led a troop of soldiers all the way to find Matt Damon's character, Private Ryan, to rescue him, save him, to pull him out of the war and send him home. And through the course of the story, they kind of all die, including in the penultimate scene, Tom Hanks' character. And as he finishes, he says to Matt Damon's character, earn this, earn this moment, earn this great sacrifice, right? And this story, just this, this moment, is constantly in Matt Damon's character. Even as an old man, he has this question, have I earned this? Has my life been reflective of this great, this great rescue story? And in a sense, Paul is saying your life should be as a Christian and our life as God's church should be this place that is deeply marked by the gospel, this great great rescue moment. The gospel is this sliding doors moment which changes our life and we should be able to look at our lives as a church and as individuals and say it is marked in a completely different, it is worthy of this great calling. So the question is, what does it mean then to live a life that's worthy of this calling? And that's exactly what Paul then starts to talk about throughout the next uh, three chapters of Ephesians, but particularly he unpacks it in this section that was just read to us by Bob. Here's what he says. He starts by saying, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body. Now, that's the image that we're, we're reflecting on, we're using as our starting point to think about Christian community this morning is the body. Paul says to live a life worthy of the great calling of the gospel is to see yourself as part of this body of Christ and to be united and committed and joined to this body. It's not the only time he uses this image. It's actually a very common image in Paul's writing about the church. He says you're a a body of Christ in Corinthians and in Romans too. And he uses this language to reflect the interdependence and the reliance that we each have on one another. Actually, to live a life worthy of the gospel is to recognise that and to invest in it. Uh, He actually really raises the language. He says, be completely humble completely. There's actually no space there, is it? It's a very high bar. Verse 3 says, make every effort to keep the unity, to live in light of this thing that the gospel is bringing about, that, that Christ has brought you together. So make sure you live in light of that. That's what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. See, the life of the body is marked by service of one another. It's marked by service of one another. This is what it looks like uh, to be a compelling community, in sense, to serve one another, to serve one another at this kind of, um, this, with this kind of high point, be completely, completely humble, make every effort. And you know what? I actually think this is one of the things that um, I am most encouraged about since Stephen's in. Many people take on this, this hallmark of, of the Christian life in our community. And we've seen lots of wonderful op- examples of this kind of service over the last weeks. I've I'm, I'm, I'm been very encouraged by this, but it's not only true of the last weeks, actually. It's been a repeated characteristic through the story of St. Stephen's that I've experienced in the last three and a half years. I think it's something that runs deep into the DNA of this church, 
And I, I can obviously claim no credit for that. Uh, but I'm very thankful for that. And I want to encourage us to embrace this characteristic of our community and not to let it be something that drifts off as the years go by into the future, but to say that this is something that we really believe is how God wants to see his people living together, marked by service of one another, service. Now, there are two clarifications to this. Uh, The first is found in verse 12. He says, God has given, uh, Jesus has given us uh, prophets, priests, uh, prophets, uh, teachers, evangelists, right? But he says, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. He makes this whole list of people who do basically word ministries. And then he says, they've been given to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. This, here's a clarification. What it looks like for God's church to serve is not primarily for me to do the serving. Right? Not for the minister to do the serving, Paul says, but for the congregation. To the extent that I'm a part of the congregation, it applies to me. But in my role as a minister, this is not, even though minister, the word means serve, the primary, primary people who are doing the serving, Paul says, is you, the congregation, God's people. Right? That's where it rests. Ministers remind us of Jesus. They remind us of this gospel. That's why they're word-based people that Paul lists leading up to this. But it's actually the people of God who live out Christ. It's the church who does the serving. Now, you might wonder why I've got this picture of people screaming. Um, this, this reminds me of a tennis match. Imagine Wimbledon, right? You've got... Uh, two great tennis players playing out on the court and you've got the crowd cheering. My question is, in that analogy, who are you, according to Paul? Our temptation is to think that you're the crowd. You sit there cheering. You're in the... You're cheering. But actually, Paul says it's the opposite. You know, you think I'm the guy playing the forehand on the tennis court. No, Paul says it's actually the opposite. The ministers, those people with uh, skills and gifts in word ministry, their job is actually more like the player's box. They've done training, they've done equipping in the lead-up, but actually their job is to sit and cheer you on. You're the person playing the game. This is very important, this clarification, because I do think it runs counter to not just a cultural mindset, but I've got to be honest, a modern Christian mindset about church. See, most people come to church, they come, they come and visit a church, and their first question is, how good is the minister's forehand? I mean, preaching, of course, right? Or how good is the kids' ministry? Or how good is the pastoral care of the staff team? But Paul's clarification is wrong way round. You want to know that question? Become part of the congregation. Because that's actually where the work gets done. The work of service. I want to challenge you. If you've come shopping for a church, don't come shopping, come to serve. I hate that language. When people tell me, oh, we're just shopping for a new church. Wrong! It's not a shop. There's no product being sold. There is a call to join us in the task of serving. 
Now, the reason why this is so intrinsically linked to the language of the body of Christ, I think, is because Jesus' body is a body given for service. I did not come to be served, but to serve, says Jesus. And if we are his spiritual body, we take on the hallmarks of Christ in our life together. We are not here to be served, but to serve equally. Secondly, uh, Paul continues then, having, so that the body of Christ may be built up, verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. See, we serve in order that people might become more like Jesus, says Paul. This is why, we, this is why we're engaged in this corporate group task of serving one another is so that people would grow in spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity, you see, is the goal of the church. It's the goal of it. The church is not a mother's club. The church is not a probus club. I mean, those things are great, don't get me wrong. Okay, that they're all, They all serve good purposes in our wider community. But the church is a place where we seek to grow people spiritually. And I think, I'm going to be honest, I think in the North Shore, this is a challenge because many of us have come to church and have grown to believe that it's actually that former group. But it's categorically different. God did not establish it to be a social club. He established it to be the place where the young in faith grow to become more like Jesus because he has a far greater vision for you and the people around you than just you will have some people who will give you a good time. He wants you to become like Jesus. And his appointed, his appointed means is this group of people who you sit with and you are the means for their growth. So when we say compelling community... We are not trying to create the best, I don't know, a.k.a. football club out there. We are, tr- we are in, a, in the task of being a place where people become more like Jesus. You know our vision statement, we long to be a church made beautiful, diverse and large by the gracious work of Christ. Here's how you could restate it using Ephesians. We long to be a place where more people from more backgrounds become more like Jesus. I know some of you disagree. You think this is kind of like, this is, this is just like some kind of corporate thing that the young guy has brought in, right? I just want to make, I want to show you that this is what the Bible is talking about. This is our, this is our central calling as God's church. That more people from more backgrounds would know Jesus more and become more like Jesus. This is what Paul says we are here for. Now, why will that be compelling? Because no other community is set up to do that. You cannot go to your Rotary Club or your Probus Club or your mother's group and become more like Jesus because of them. You can't. You can't. Because this is what God has decided. This is the place that God has decided you become more like Jesus by serving these people. By serving these people. This has got to be a hallmark of our life. It's got to be a hallmark of our life. Now, I, I really want... If you're in our NCLS data, it says 15% of people, which is not an insignificant number, 15% of our congregation across a Sunday 
would like to serve more. I love that. If you are in that 15%, or maybe you're reconsidering, you, maybe you should be in that 15%, come and tick the box on the, on the Connect card. I will have a coffee with you. We will find a way for you to serve here at St. Stephen's, to serve God's people here at St. Stephen's. I don't mean just get a job done. I don't mean fill a roster. I mean give you your God-given task of living a life worthy of the gospel. I'll do it with you. I'll sit with you. We'll have a coffee. We'll work it out. What is it? What is, what is the sweet spot? What is in your wheelhouse so that you can do what God wants you to do with your life so that it is worthy of your great calling? I'll do it with you. I would encourage you to do it right now. I, I will not look at you directly if you start doing that. I'll only know because I'll check the cards tomorrow morning. Um, but I think it's worth doing. It's really worth it. And actually, when you serve together, it really does grow you. I've seen this in our scripture team. We meet together on a Monday. We prepare the study. We read the Bible. We pray together. We then teach together on a Wednesday. It is a great experience. But also, I have seen members of our scripture team grow to be more like Jesus as they have served together, as well as, of course, seeing some of the kids do that too. You see, to live a life worthy of Christ is to give your whole self for the sake of the growth of God's people. That's what it looks like. But, you know, you might be listening to me and thinking, that's all well and good for you, but I don't want to do that. It's, it's just, it's not appealing to me. Well, I kind of get that. I think Paul does too, in some ways. Because look at how he starts this whole section. He introduces himself again to the, to the Ephesians just in case they forgot how he sees himself. He says in verse 1, he says in verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord. Now, this is not unusual. Paul does introduce himself as a prisoner or a slave or a servant of the Lord regularly through his letters. And he's partly doing it because he probably is actually like in a prison as he's writing this letter. But I think it's more... It's, it's, an, it's a real statement of his true sense of his identity, right? His experience of his life, being a Christian, living out the gospel, is actually to experience a sense of being imprisoned, right? To be a servant is to, to I guess, bind yourself to people, uh, to a group, in a way that does restrict yourself. Um, and I think that that is actually why we find service quite challenging. I mean, we like the concept, but the reason we don't throw ourselves into it is because it means we have to imprison ourselves to a group of people, to a task, to a responsibility, to a, to a, to a vision of life, right? And you know what? That, in our world, that is less and less something people want to do. I've read an article recently that said that volunteering rates just generally in our society are plummeting especially after the pandemic. Here's what one author says. We are a people who are uncomfortably, unhealthily drawn towards ourselves, and we like drawing other people to ourselves. We are, after all, about ourselves. I mean, never before have we used um, image capturing to capture our own image. But now, like, within the last 15 years, every person's phone gives you the ability to take a picture of yourself. And so in that culture, it's quite hard to, to really want to serve. You might know you should, but to want to do it. But Paul, he just understands himself as that. 
And he's right. He is a him. Because when you serve, it humbles yourself, right? It, it means that you are willing to imprison yourself in a sense, make yourself a prisoner to someone else's needs and status. Right? It, make, it might mean that you have to do a thankless task. Right? You, you might be doing a task which no one sees or, or, or understands. Or says that, I mean, I'm guaranteed there'll be jobs you do when you're with God's people, where no one will know it and no one will really show you the appreciation. Or even if they do, they don't show you the appreciation that you should want. You, should, you, sh- you maybe deserve. And, and thirdly, to serve is hard and costly and it feels like you're tying yourself to something that's going to drain you and going to sap you. But what I want you to see is that actually the Bible stories that you and I are always prisoners to something. We're always captive to someone or something, right? And you might be rejecting the task of service, the responsibility of service, because of all these things which you suddenly get bound to and tied to, but you're still prisoner to something. You're just imprisoned to another value, another way of... Look, look you say, oh, I'm, I just... I don't want my own myself. Like, I live... The world tells me that I'm the most important person. Why would, I want to, why would I make myself less valuable in someone's eye? Well, you had just become the prisoner to your own pride. That's what's, that's what's governing your decisions now. You say, I'm, I just can't see myself doing a task where I don't get thanked for it. You're just a prisoner to the approval of others. And if you don't get it, it means suddenly your ability to do something is limited, right? You're a prisoner to that. You're a prisoner to the approval of another. We say, oh, I just can't do that job because it's hard and costly and it drain me. You're a prisoner to comfort and ease. You say, is that really a prison? Yeah, it is actually. Because there's lots of things in your life you just won't do. There's lots of deep joys and experiences you won't have because you're a prisoner to having a comfortable and easy life. It's just, it's just the case. Paul says we're a prisoner of something. We actually just need to acknowledge that and, and actually think about who we're a prisoner to. We are a prisoner to someone. Like, let me do a little thought experiment with you. Just bear with me. Imagine you got kidnapped. We talked about kidnapping a few times this service. Uh, imagine you got kidnapped, right? You get taken to, like, some cabin in the middle of the woods. You're locked up there. You've got mouldy bread and water for weeks. That's it. You see no one, been blindfolded, got no idea, you become hopeless. Then finally, the FBI bangs down the door. They say, you're free. Now, in our culture, we think freedom means they open the door, they say, off you go. All the best. But of course, you're malnourished, you're weak, you're disoriented, you're lost, you're cold. You're not free. You're just caught in another prison. So you actually need someone to take hold of you, don't you? Put you in the back of the car, put you, wrap you up in a blanket, give you food, take you home. It's a different... You, you need to be taken hold of by someone. And the Bible says you either are a prisoner to sin and death, to selfishness and the ways of the devil... Or you're taken hold of by Christ. You're captive to Christ. 
And see, that's the key for Paul. He's a prisoner, but he understands he's not a prisoner of the world. He's a prisoner for the Lord. And the key, you see, to living for Christ is to understand how good it is to be taken captive by Jesus. It's the language that's running through the passage. He quotes Psalm 68, which if you go home and read, beautiful psalm. It's a it's a, it's a processional psalm. It's a, it's a story about God, the great king, who comes down from his great mountain, because mountains were where kings were. He comes down from the mountain to take hold of his people and then take them back up the mountain again. And Paul has been saying in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, you are seated, if your faith is in Christ, you are seated in the heavenly realms. Now, so when Paul says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to him, he's saying, if you're a prisoner of the Lord, Jesus has come down, he's descended to take hold of you, to rescue you, and what? To take you into the heavenly throne room, the throne room of God. And to give you a seat in that great and extraordinary place. And then he says, not only that, not only has Jesus come, this is what this Lord does. He comes and takes you from from the pits of despair to the heights of glory, right? But then he says, he'll send you out again. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, etc. He says he will send you out, but from the fullness of the whole universe, his glory, which occupies the fullness of the whole universe, he says, from that he will give you gifts as he sends you out. He will send you out, but he will send you out with all you need to do his work. He will give you all the gifts you need from the fullness, from his fullness, which fills the whole universe from that great treasury of the Lord, he will give you everything you need to do his work. Everything. Both without and within. Without, he'll give you prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, he'll give you God's church. He'll give you this group of people to encourage you and remind you of the gospel, to be with you, to walk with you, to serve alongside you. He won't send you to do this task alone. He sends you with this people. But, of course, within as well, because his great gift is ultimately his spirit, the one spirit we all have. And so you never go into a place to serve God apart from him. You never go anywhere to serve on your own strength. You never persevere in a task by yourself. Will it humble you? Yes. But remember, you're seated in the throne room of God. Will it be thankless? Maybe. But remember, God sees it. He's with you in this task. Will it be hard and draining? Almost definitely. But he has given you his full resources so that you can meet the challenge that he lays before you. God never sends you. He never asks you to do his work without his resources, without his resources. Let us live a life worthy of the gospel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great gospel, this great calling on our life, the story of the Lord Jesus who descended to rescue us 
and to take us into your heavenly throne room so that right now we have places marked for us. Not because of something we've done. Before we did anything for you, he loved us. Lord, we pray that in light of this truth that you not only have set aside a place for us, but you've also, you've also sent us with your spirit. We pray that you would enable us to live a life worthy of your calling. In Jesus' name.